0: Problems, hardships, discouragement seem to be a part of life we cannot escape. It is certain that all people, believers and unbelievers alike, will go through hard times, have problems, and feel discouraged. Since there is no question about whether or not we'll face these times, the real question is what will we do when they come? How will we respond when the hard times come into our life? How will we respond when we face discouragement? In many ways, I'm not sure we can give a, a solid answer until we're in the hard time or we're facing the discouragement. As with many things, it's easy to give an answer about this is what I would do uh, when we're not facing that thing. and all seems right with our world. But it's an entirely different uh, situation to give the answer in the hard time and during the discouragement. Now, thankfully, we aren't the first generations of disciples of Jesus to have to figure out what we're going to do and how to wrestle with this issue. Every generation of disciples of Jesus has had to wrestle uh, with this and try to find an answer to this question for themselves. Also, thankfully, Jesus is for us and he wants us to fight the good fight. He wants us to finish the race that he has set before us and he wants us to keep the faith. Therefore, he has given us messages of encouragement for the times of when we're struggling to persevere. Tonight so we're going to look at a letter. Uh, part of a letter sent to a, a community of disciples of Jesus who were in fact struggling to persevere. If you haven't already opened your Bible to Hebrews four, now we're going to start in verse eight. It should be page eight hundred or I'm sorry, nine hundred and twenty two in your pew Bibles. And when you find that I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The author of Hebrews writes, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. Therefore, let's make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as division of soul and spirit, both joints and morals, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give it, to whom we must answer. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all things just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so it may receive mercy and find grace to help at the time of our need. The title of the message tonight is The Struggle to Persevere. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the, the reality of your word. Lord, your word is, uh, is pretty honest with us about the fact that we're going to face hard times. Jesus was pretty clear that in this world we would have tribulation. Uh, we're thankful for that. We're thankful your word doesn't promise. Lord, this life of, of ease. A life where there's no struggles, a life where there's no discouragement. We're glad for that because, Lord, that's just not the world we live in. And Your word wouldn't be reliable if that's what it told us we would be living in. But your word is reliable, so it's told us the truth about the world. But, Father, it's also told us what we can do, how we can face these times, what we can do during those times so that we don't fall away in, in a time of discouragement, in a time of great difficulty. But, Lord, you are for us. You want us to persevere. Father, we have everything we need to be able to persevere through your word, through your spirit, through the grace of Christ that has been given to us when we repented and believed. So, God, tonight, strengthen us and encourage us. Lord, I don't know what's going on in anyone's life. There may well be someone here tonight that is struggling to persevere. And, Lord, if there is, use this message to encourage their heart and strengthen them that they would cling to Christ and they would persevere. But, Lord, for those who aren't going through a difficult time right now, Father, life tells us we're going to be going through one at some point. And so let us store this in the back of our minds and have it prepared in our hearts so that when that time assaults us and comes upon us, we're not caught off guard. We know what to do and we're able to also cling to Christ and so persevere. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your grace and goodness. Thank You for the opportunity we have. Thank You, Lord, for Jesus and all that He has done for us on the cross. Fill me tonight with Your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all our hearts and all of our lives. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews, as we may know, was written to an unknown author, written by an unknown author to an unknown Jewish community of disciples of Jesus who were struggling to persevere. Their struggle to persevere flowed out of the fact they were suffering great persecution. Uh, They came to Jesus Christ, repented and believed, and began to become disciples of Jesus. And, and almost instantly, uh, hard times began to come into their lives. Their suffering was great. There was persecution. There was mocking. They even talks about in Hebrews at one point, having their earthly goods taken from them. This was happening simply because uh, they had repented of their sins and believed in the gospel and began to follow Jesus. Now, at first, they followed the example of the apostles, And they joyfully endured that. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Um, But as time had gone on, things had kept on. There was no relief for them. It seemed to be just continually going. Uh, And and they began to wonder if things wouldn't be better if they went back to Judaism. It's in their mind None of this was going on while they were following the Juda- while they were ju- following Judaism and they thought if they went back it might make the world a better place and kind of end the suffering. And, and, and you know, you think about it, it's easy for us to follow the same sort of line of thought. I mean, isn't it disturbingly easy to go back to what's familiar when we're struggling with hard times and discouragement? I mean, it, it's disturbingly easy To do what's easiest when we're facing hard times and when we're facing discouragement. Uh, We can go along great in our lives, and our service to Jesus, and everything's going the way we think it ought to. But then a hard time comes into our life, a discouragement, we begin to face it. And and it's just like we begin to go back to what is more familiar. We begin to go back to whatever is easiest. Uh, We see this with the disciples uh, in fact, in, in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, after Jesus has been crucified, but before he has resurrected or after he's resurrected, but before he's ascended, they're they're discouraged. They don't know what else to do. And so they they get together and they say, I think we ought to go fishing. Now, why would they go fishing? Well, because some of them were fishermen before they answered the call to begin to follow Jesus. And so they went back to what was familiar I can think in my own life, uh, after I'd gotten out of the army, I was facing a time of deep discouragement. It was one of the first times I'd ever faced discouragement in my life. And I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and go back and reenlist in the army. My reasoning for it was, I knew what it was to be a soldier. I was ready to be a soldier. That was familiar. That was what was easiest. And being a civilian at that time was not. They were considering the same thing. Judaism was familiar, Judaism was easier, let's just go back. But Jesus wanted these disciples of Jesus to persevere in faith and faithfulness. So he inspired an unknown author to write this letter to them. And in this letter, the great overarching theme of the letter is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is just better. Jesus wanted them to know that He was better because He understood that if they knew for sure He was better and they understood His preeminence and His supremacy, they would not go back, but they would cling to Him. And in clinging to Him, they would persevere. Well, the reality is Jesus, He wants us To persevere as well. He wants us to remain faithful and to keep the faith. And to do that, we too need to know that Jesus is better. Because when we understand Jesus is better than what is familiar that we might go back to. Or Jesus is better than what's easiest that we might go back to. We will cling to Jesus and so we too will persevere. And so our main thought tonight is clinging to Jesus. Uh, enables us to persevere clinging to jesus enables us to persevere and what i want to do tonight is just show us three ways three actions we can take to cling to jesus so that we can persevere number one is look for the coming day of rest In the verses leading up to our text, in verse 8, 9, and 10, well, in the verses leading up to our text, we start in verse 8. The author is reminding the people about God's promise of rest. God had promised a day of rest to the people of Israel, uh, but they had failed to enter that rest because of unbelieving disobedience. Now, that was a reference, of course, to the the Exodus and those who did not enter the promised land. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Instead of entering the promised land as God had promised them and entering to that rest. They allowed unbelief in God's power to give them the promised land. Caused them to disobey him. And that unbelieving disobedience uh, resulted in them not being allowed to enter into the promised land. Into God's place of rest. Now several years later uh, Joshua assumes the mantle of leadership for the nation of Israel, and he does lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land where they conquer it. Under Joshua's leadership, under God's power, they were able to conquer the Promised Land and have a measure of rest from their labors and their struggles. Now, the Israelites or the Jewish Christians who were reading that, they would know that story every bit as well as we do. While none of that was new information to them, what he transitions to in verse 8 would have been new information to them. It would have been maybe even somewhat shocking to them. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So what he's saying is that Joshua's conqueror of the promised land didn't really give them the final rest God had promised In fact, if you're familiar with the story of Joshua, you know that entering in the promised land really wasn't the beginning of rest at all. It was the beginning of most of their fighting. I mean, they spent the next quite a bit of time fussing, or or not fussing, fighting with the enemy so they could conquer the land. And after they conquered the land, they had a a measure of rest. But even after that that measure of rest, after conquering the land, the rest wasn't complete. It, It was only a foretaste. Of the final rest that we're told here is, is yet still to come. We see in verse 9, uh, we're told about it again. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now this would have been significant for them and it's important for us to understand. Because, again, often what we're told in our day, what is the, the common and most popular idea in teaching in pop Christian culture today... It is that if we, if we just have enough faith, if we are just faithful enough, we won't have any problems. We, we won't have any discouragements. We, we won't have any trials or, or face any hardships. Now the problem with this teaching is God's word, which teaches us something entirely different. God's Word clearly teaches us in this life we will have tribulations. In this life we will have problems. But at the same time, there are places in Scripture where we seem to be told, seem to be promised, there will be no trials. There will be no sorrows. There will be no pains. There will be no problems. So the question we have to wrestle with is, are these two teachings contradictory to one another? Is God's Word in conflict with itself? Did, did one author teach a, a prosperity mindset and another author teach something different and it was put together and so God's Word is in conflict with itself? Well, the answer is no, that's not the problem. God's Word is not in conflict with itself. It is not conflicting with itself. The problem is with the interpretation about God's Word. Because there is for sure a promise about a time when there will be no trials, there will be no sorrows, there will be no pains, and there will be no problems. However, that time has not yet come. There is, as we see in verse 9, still a Sabbath rest coming for the people of God. It is something we are looking for, but it is not something we are currently living Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. We will know beyond a shadow of a doubt when we have entered this time of rest because we will rest from our works. Now the reality of of resting from our works, the, the promise of resting from our works completely and fully cannot be a reference to any time Prior to the millennial reign of Jesus. Or maybe the, the when eternity is ushered in and new Jerusalem comes down. But that is when the promise will be fulfilled. That is when we will experience the fullness of God's rest. Not now. Not here. Not at this time. Now obviously there will be times where there are no trials. There are no sorrows. There, there are no discouragements that we face. And while these times are sweet blessings from Jesus, they are not permanent. Instead, they are glimpses into the glories to come. They are intended to whet our appetite for that day and cause us to cling tightly to Jesus so that we will persevere. The Apostle Paul understood this tension of how it was. In Romans 18, the Apostle Paul said the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory of what awaits us. He also said in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, the sufferings of this life that he experienced were, were momentary and light. But, before we conclude, Paul lived in a different world than we did and he had an easier life than we do since he had momentary and light afflictions. 2 Corinthians 11 through gives us a, a short list of the hardships and the sufferings he endured. He had been flogged by the Jews with 39 lashes on three different occasions. He had been beaten with rods three different times. Once he had been stoned and left for dead. He was in three shipwrecks. During one of those shipwrecks, he spent a day and a night floating in the water. While not in 2 Corinthians, we know from the totality of his writings that when he became a Christian and he committed his life to Christ, he, he lost his place of influence and affluence in the Jewish community. And that he was most likely disowned by his family. He had suffered the loss of all things, he says in Philippians. And yet he counted them all but scuba, but dumb in comparison to the glories of knowing Jesus. And in all of that suffering, all of those things he endured, Paul still said nothing could compare to the glories of what awaited him when he entered into the rest of God. Keeping his eye on the coming day of rest caused Paul to cling to Christ. And thus he finished his race well. In this life, we struggle. We toil. We labor under heavy burdens. But at the end of it all, there is rest. And when that day comes, we will put our burdens down and we will toil no more. There's a song called When We See Christ. And the chorus says, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. Looking forward to the coming day of rest enables us to cling to Jesus and thus persevere. So we, we look for the coming day of rest, but secondly, we, we need to be careful to obey God's Word. Look at verse 11. Let's make every effort to enter that rest. So that no one will fail, will fall by following the same example of disobedience. We are to, because there is a day of rest coming, we are to make every effort to ensure we enter that rest and we don't follow the example of the people in Exodus who, who missed out on what God had for them. There, if you remember the story, Moses led them right up to the, to the edge. And they camped out and they sent over spies. And the spies went out, twelve, and they came back. And they all had a similar report at first. The land is good. It's everything we've ever been told it was. But, and after they said the but, there were two different groups that stood up. There were ten of the spies who went out and said, but, the people in the land are giants. And the city walls are high. And we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can never take that land. And then there was Joshua and Caleb who said, if God be for us, it does not matter who is against us. Let's arise and go. And the people listened to the ten evil reports. And they refused to To go take the promised land. Unbelieving disobedience. And after the unbelieving disobedience. God was angry with them. For not believing in him. And not obeying him. And he told them. They would not be able to enter. The rest. Their unbelieving disobedience. Kept them from entering the promised land. God made them wander in the wilderness. For 40 years. Until the unbelieving disobedience. Rebellious generation had died off other than Joshua and Caleb who went in. Now, considering that the world is constantly filled with the same sort of evil reports that you can't do it, we can't make it, it won't work, this isn't real, how do we keep from following their example? Verse 12, "...for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword." even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The author is telling us that what would keep us from unbelieving disobedience is the Word of God. And it tells us two important facts about God's Word that help us, keep us from falling into unbelieving disobedience. The first is God's Word is is living and active. It's not a... A dead letter. It's it's more than pen and ink. Despite the fact it is, in fact, a very old book, it is still relevant for us today. It is still living and active and has the power to help us and to work in us and to enable us just as surely as it did the original hearers. Two thousand years ago, when the New Testament was written, it spoke powerfully. To disciples of Jesus in that day. Two thousand years later, it speaks powerfully to disciples of Jesus in our day. If the world goes on for another two thousand years, God's word will still be speaking just as powerfully then as it ever has before. As we read God's word, as we hear God's word, it actively works in our lives and brings change into our lives It strengthens us, it revives us, it encourages us, it convicts us. It does so many things that need to be done in our lives so that we can persevere. Secondly, we're told God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates and can divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It can even get right down and begin to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart picture with all of this is the that God's word can can really get beyond the outer right God's word isn't a a book of do this and don't do that any book can do that you can go to any self-help section of any bookstore anywhere in the world filled with do this and don't do that that's not what God's word is God's word is more than that because God's word is able to go beyond the do this and the don't do that. And it cuts deep into our innermost thoughts and our innermost desires. And it reveals what we're really like on the inside. God's word can get beyond here's what you're doing and it can begin to convict us and deal with us about why we're doing it. God's word can get beyond, here's what you're not doing, that it can get down into our hearts and deal with us about why we're not doing it. God's word will challenge our our motives, our attitudes. It'll even speak, it'll even deal with the thoughts we think but never say. So how does God's word do this? Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account, to whom we must answer. God's Word can do this because God knows everything. There is no aspect of our lives that is hidden from the Lord our God. God knows all about us. He knows our actions and He knows our motives. He knows our speech and He knows our thoughts. He knows the words that we Think but never say he knows the desires of our heart that we may keep hidden and pressed down all of our life There is no aspect of our life that is not laid bare and clearly seen by God And so God can use his words He says in Isaiah 55 to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish And so God will use his word to speak into our lives what we need at a given moment He'll deal with us about the things we need to be dealt with. He will convict us about the things we need to be convicted about. He'll encourage us when we need to be encouraged. He'll revive us when we need to be revived. He'll challenge us when we need to be challenged. Whatever we need so that we can persevere and be faithful, God can use His Word to do in our lives. Now the reality though, it's not everyone who is brought into conviction through God's Word and through God's Spirit, is kept from unbelieving disobedience. So why is that? Why is it in a room filled with people, one person can hear it and be encouraged to cling to Christ and persevere, and another person can hear it and yet still fall into the same example of unbelieving disobedience as the Israelites did? Well, the answer is found earlier in chapter 4. Look at verse 2. For indeed, we have had the same good news preached to us just as they also did. But the word they heard did not benefit them because it's not mixed with faith. The reason the word doesn't help some people is because they don't believe what God's word says. Faith is the key. But now this is where it gets even more interesting. Faith, belief, mixed with belief, listened with faith, is more than I believe this is God's word. Because think about, again, the context of the children of Israel. When Moses said, cross over and take the land, did they say, I don't know if that's really God's message or not. I mean, I'm pretty sure that might just be you, Moses. I, I, I don't know. Of course they did. not How did they. Why did they not think that? Because they literally had a pillar of fire in the night and a pillar of cloud in the day. They had heard the voice of God thunder from Mount Sinai. The word to go and take the land they knew was God's word. They knew it was God's message. Their faith, their lack of faith was shown in their disobedience. It wasn't that they didn't believe it was the word of God. It was that they did not believe God could do what He said He could do. Their lack of faith wasn't in the source of the words, but in the ability of God to keep those words. And their unbelief was shown in their disobedience to God's Word. God's Word can keep us clinging to Christ and enable us to persevere regardless of what happens in our life. It can keep us from unbelieving disobedience. This does not happen because we merely hear God's word or because we merely read God's word. It happens as we obey God's word. When God speaks to us from his word and he brings conviction and guidance into our lives, we have a choice about what to do. We can respond with believing obedience or we can respond with unbelieving disobedience. And how we respond in that moment will have a significant impact on whether or not we cling to Christ and persevere. Because the reality, we cannot live in unbelieving disobedience to God and His Word and maintain a close relationship with Jesus at the same time. I cannot cling to Jesus while disobeying His Word. We have to choose. I want to add something here, though. For most of us as disciples of Jesus, unbelieving disobedience is not likely to be the standard way in which we live our lives. Rather, for most of us, the greater danger is something more subtle, but just as dangerous. It's the danger of carelessness in our obedience to God and His Word. Part of my daily Bible reading has been in the book of Deuteronomy. And last week I read a Deuteronomy 26. And I wrote this in my journal. So often in Deuteronomy we're told to be careful. About our obedience. To God and His word. I don't think I've been careful to obey God and His word as I should. I haven't been rebellious. Just not careful to obey. I've been lax. Careless. Sloppy casual, nonchalant in my obedience to God and His Word. This must change, and soon. I think casual, careless, sloppy obedience is a far greater likelihood and danger for most of us who would consider ourselves deeply devoted disciples of Jesus. But it's just as dangerous. And it leads to the same unbelieving disobedience given enough time. If we want to cling to Jesus, if we want to persevere, we must be careful to respond to God's Word in faith-filled obedience. And being careful to obey God's Word enables us to cling to Jesus And thus persevere. So we look for the coming day of rest. Careful to obey God's word. And then finally go to Jesus for help. Look at verse 14. Therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold firmly to our confession. One of the reasons we can persevere is because Jesus is our great high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest made the atoning sacrifice. He went into the most holy place in the presence of God, sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat and interceded for the nation of Israel once a year, every year. Jesus, as our great high priest, has also made an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has also sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat and he now intercedes for us. There is, however, a remarkable difference between what the old high priest did and what our great high priest has done. Jesus does not make a sacrifice year after year. He has made one sacrifice forever and He ever lives to intercede for us. He doesn't go in once a year to intercede. He lives at the Father's right hand ever continually interceding for us. Think about that. Think about how great that is. In your moment of struggle, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is interceding for you. How, how awesome is that? And He's not a human down here interceding. I mean, we, that's great when our brothers in Christ will pray with us and for us. Wonderful. Truly it is. But Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Has His ear as it were. Interceding for us in that moment of struggle. Interceding with us in that moment of discouragement. Interceding for us in that difficult time we're facing. Knowing this allows us, as he says here, to hold firmly to our confession. Now look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are. And yet without sin. The idea of Jesus, he's not one who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, means he is someone who understands. Uh, Jesus left the glories of heaven, came and dwelt among us on earth, limited himself in so many ways, and he experienced our weaknesses, he experienced our struggles. In taking on human form, Jesus was. Tempted by sin. Jesus was tired. Jesus uh, felt the same sort of feelings that we feel. He is able to sympathize with all of the issues we face. He in essence, it also is like saying he is there with us in the moment. He he feels our pain. He understands what it is to face hardship. He understands what it is to face trials. He understands what it is to face discouragement. But, and here's the good part, yet without sin. This is one of the reasons we can go to Jesus in those times. Jesus faced the same things we do, but he made the right decision every single time. I mean, if we need help from someone, we want help from an expert, don't we? You're not going to come to me for help with math. I'm not going to do you any good. I, I did not do it correctly in high school. I did not do it correctly in college. I'm certainly not going to do it correctly now. If you come to me for math help, you're asking to fail at whatever you're trying to do. You're not going to come to me for help with how to fix a car. I had a car I took apart once, put it back together, had extra parts. I didn't know Ford Mustangs came with extra parts, but my model did. Carried them around the trunk for years, never had any problems. Right. If you want my help with fixing a car, you're going to have extra parts, too. I can almost guarantee you that it would be foolish to come to me for help with that. To go to someone who has faced what we faced and made poor choices in the face of that and say, what should I do? Isn't the wisest decision we could make. It's like coming to me for help with your car. It's like coming to me for help with college algebra if you want help in that moment of how to make the right decision, go to the one who faced it yet without sin. Did not fail, did not blow it, did it exactly as he was supposed to. And because of that, look at verse 16. Therefore, so since he is our great high priest, since he can sympathize with our weakness, since he was tempted in all things like as we are, since he did it without sin, Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Since Jesus is all of these things, we approach Him. Now, there's a lot about this that we I want to talk about, but we don't have time for all of it. I just want to point out a couple of things. One, notice that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. When we go in that moment and we need help, we don't have to go afraid. We don't have to go and and think Jesus is going to say, what is wrong with you? The answer is so obvious. We don't go as fearful slaves, fearing the wrath of our master. We go as dearly loved children, invited into our father's presence, who has invited us to cast all of our cares upon him. For he cares for us. We go boldly. Secondly, I want you to notice what kind of throne it is. It's a throne of grace. It's not the throne of judgment. It's not the throne of the wrath of God. This is a throne of grace where we are received, where we are welcomed, where we are, in fact, invited to come. And then lastly, I want you to notice the promise. We may, and may there doesn't mean we might, but it means we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. As disciples of Jesus, we are invited by Jesus to come to the throne of Jesus and receive from him mercy and grace. To help us. We can go to Him for mercy and grace in the hard times. We can go to Him for mercy and grace in times of temptation. We can go to Him for mercy and grace in times of discouragement. We can go to Him for mercy and grace any time we have a need for His mercy and grace to help us. This is an open-ended invitation that is always there for those of us who have repented of our sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are invited, we are welcomed, and we are promised that He will give us the mercy and the grace we need in that moment. So knowing Jesus is our great High Priest who invites us to come to His throne of grace, find mercy and grace... To help us. It should motivate us. To boldly go to Jesus. And going to Jesus. Enables us to cling to Jesus. And thus persevere. So let me ask you. Do you need Jesus. Tonight. Do you need help. Getting your eyes off. The circumstances and to look the coming day of rest go to Jesus and find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need do you need help to be careful in your obedience to Jesus through his word then go to Jesus where you are promised to find mercy and grace to help you In your time of need. And enable you to carefully be obedient to Jesus. Do you need a high priest who has made an atoning sacrifice for your sins? Then go to Jesus. And find mercy and grace to help you. And to cover your sins. And to wash them away. And to make you new. Do you need help? With whatever pain or problem you're currently experiencing in your life. Then go to Jesus and find the mercy and the grace you need that will help you with whatever trouble, hardship or difficulty you're facing. Go to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You're great and awesome. You're wonderful and worthy. We exalt you and we magnify you. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he is our great high priest, that we can go to him, find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Father, what a precious promise that is. Help us to take that to heart. Help us to live that out. And Lord, let us be a people who go to Jesus. Father, not go to someone else, not go to a book, not go to a blog, not go to YouTube. Go to Jesus. He is the only one who has the mercy and grace that can help us in our time of need. Guide us, work in us, help us to cling to Jesus so that we can persevere. Father, let us run the race with endurance that you have set before us. Let us live in such a way that when this race is over, and we come to your kingdom, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.